life of fulfillment starts with understanding your values. And when you know what truly motivates you, you can accomplish extraordinary things. Welcome to the Discover Your Values podcast, where each week we hear unique perspectives on human values with leaders who inspire us to explore the depth of our potential. Now, here's your host, Jacob J. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to another episode. This week, we have Elizabeth Segrin, a staff writer at Fast Company, whose work has appeared in a range of publications, including The Atlantic, Foreign Policy, Foreign Affairs, The Nation, The New Republic, The Chronicle of Higher Education, and Salon. Her book, The River Speaks, was published in 2012 by Penguin Books. She received her PhD from the University of California, Berkeley, in the field of South and Southeast Asian studies with a designated emphasis in women, gender, and sexuality. Elizabeth, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. We are so excited to have you. So Elizabeth, before we jump into kind of why we brought you on the show, tell us a little bit of kind of about your background and your work. So I am a fashion writer at Fast Company Magazine, and I don't really write about fashion the way perhaps a fashion magazine uh, would cover fashion. I'm interested in things about innovations in fashion. I'm, I'm also particularly interested in sustainability and in this very topic that we're discussing today, this idea of how today's consumer is thinking about fashion perhaps slightly differently than the generation that came before because they're really interested in where their clothes were made. Um, and so brands are now responding to that. And that's something I'm, I'm quite passionate about. Yeah, that's great. And you've got a couple really great articles on Fast Company. I had an opportunity to go through them this weekend. And we're going to dive into some questions because for our listeners that are tuning in today, I'm going to post a couple links in the show notes. But one of the articles is called A Complete Guide to Buying Ethical Clothes on a Budget. And Elizabeth really dissects this topic incredibly well. So I'd love to just jump in to this article some and, and, and to some questions. So what role does values play in fashion today? Kind of how is it evolving? Well, I think that today's consumer is rather different from generations that came before. I think that for most of the last 50 years, consumers weren't particularly concerned about ethics when it came to fashion. You know, occasionally there would be these big stories, you know, in the 80s and 90s about sweatshops. That's how consumers would become aware a little bit that there were things happening in factories in other parts of the world that they maybe should be concerned about. But I think the average consumer wasn't really thinking that carefully about where their clothes were made and, uh, and who was involved in that process. But things have changed for, I think, the millennial generation and now Generation Z. And I think that there are many reasons for that, including the fact that you know we're a generation that is interested in shopping locally, in, in going to our farmer's market and seeing where you know, our, our food comes from, where people who grew up you know, thinking and, and talking about things like, like ethical clothing and sustainability and, you know, and the environment, things like that. And so when we were old enough to buy our own clothes, we suddenly started thinking, well, actually, you know, if I know where my tomato was grown, you know, maybe I should think about where this t-shirt was made. So I, so all of that to say that I think that today's consumer is 
more aware of the issue of values when it comes to buying clothes. I think a lot of consumers are trying to buy clothes um, that are made ethically or will at least be turned away from a brand when they hear that you know clothes were made in some sort of terrible sweatshop. I think that turns today's consumer away more than previous generations. But I think the downside to all of this is that so many brands now are saying that their clothes are made ethically because it's kind of you know a crucial part of marketing these days. And that actually makes it a little bit hard for consumers to be able to determine whether you know that brand is being honest or not about you know its supply chain and manufacturing because it's such a widespread part of marketing now. I just saw yesterday a brand, a very large brand here in the U.S. that was doing exactly what you were kind of sharing there around promoting the ethical manufacture of clothing. And they posted uh, an article on some various social channels where they had this photo of these women in a factory. It appears to be somewhere maybe in, in Asia, Southeast Asia. Uh, and it's all about you know the ethical manufacture of clothing. And then the link that you go to on the website actually makes no mention whatsoever really about that process or what's happening in their kind of supply chain. And so to your point, it felt somewhat kind of dubious. Yeah. I mean, I think that now it's basically expected that a brand will have a part of its website where it talks about its manufacturing process. Um, I think consumers expect to see that and perhaps alarm bells go off if they don't see you know, a link to, to how the products were made. But there's a lot of you know, confusing and difficult things that go into the, the entire supply chain. And so if you're not particularly educated about, about what the supply chain is like, it's really hard for you to, to see whether that's BS or whether that's, you know, whether that's accurate. And so that's, that's part of the problem. And that's part of why I've been writing about this so much, because I'm learning so much about how the supply chain works. And I, and I think that people are curious to, to try and understand a little bit more. I imagine. So every person listening you know, to our show right now has a shirt sitting in his or her closet. And all that we know is that it's a shirt that we probably like the design, we might like the style, maybe it was a good value. But I, I've learned from kind of reading some of your research, there's an entirely different narrative to this shirt that we probably haven't seen. And that's the narrative of its manufacturer. What's the shirt story that we haven't seen? For those of us that have clothes in our closet, what's the story we're not hearing? So I think there's two ways to think about that shirt. One is the environmental impact, and the other is the human impact of, of all that went into making that shirt. So let's just break that into, into those two different compartments. So let's think a little bit about the human impact first. You know, about 50 or 60 years ago, a lot of shirts were made in the United States. There were these big American brands like Fruit of the Loom and lots of other, you know, other brands that were making products locally. But what happened in the 90s was that a lot of these companies started making their products in places where it would be cheaper, basically. That meant going to China, going to Southeast Asia, going to, to Mexico and other parts of Latin America. And so the whole idea there was that, you know, in these, these other countries, currency is weaker and people get paid a lot less. 
So that that would mean that the price per shirt would be would be significantly lower. The problem with that and that whole trend is that these are countries where there are fewer regulations about how workers are treated. So in the United States, you know, there there are rules about, you know, how many hours, you know, somebody can work and the conditions under which they're working. There, there are all these rules about like workplace safety. And of course, you know, some brands and some companies don't follow them, but at least they exist. In many other countries, those rules don't even exist, right? Like the government doesn't have a set of rules like that. And if they do, they're not enforced. And so what that means is that these, you know, these low wage workers are you know, being treated very, very, you know, they're, 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 they're laboring under sometimes unsafe conditions that they might be exposed to chemicals. They might be working very, very long hours. There might be child labor involved. And actually, you know, if, if we look back at the way journalists have, you know, tracked a lot of overseas manufacturing, we see that that actually is the case. You know, lots of factories overseas are using children who are as young as, you know, like 10 and 11, sometimes younger. We know that, you know, even brands that we're quite familiar with have sometimes used factories where, you know, there isn't much ventilation and, and workers are passing out um, really, you know, sort of terrible conditions like that. The other problem is that, you know, consumers have gotten, because America did this, because, you know, so many American factories decided to, to stop production here and move overseas, consumers got increasingly more comfortable with paying very little for their clothes. A t-shirt that, you know, maybe in today's currency would cost, you know, $20 at one point. You know, suddenly we started, you know, expecting to pay $10 for that t-shirt. And then, you know, after that, we decided, okay, well, you know, this other company, this fast fashion company is only charging $5 for a t-shirt. And so basically, this pushed the, the ex- consumer expectation for how much things should cost lower and lower. And so what that meant was that in these overseas company, uh, these overseas countries um, where where these workers were making these clothes, you know, the you know there was there was more and more pressure to either work people longer hours or you know reduce their wages uh, lower and lower. And so there was this kind of downward pressure in the market to make things as inexpensive as possible, and there was a huge human cost there. And so that's kind of the world that we're in right now, where consumers expect to pay incredibly you know, low prices for their clothes. In fact, I think a lot of us actually, you know, because of this trend of fast fashion, this idea that you, know, you can just buy the latest fashions every season at a low price, you know, we expect that. And we kind of think of clothes as disposable. And so we, we don't want to pay too much for them because you know, the t-shirt that you're wearing today, like you, maybe you won't be wearing it you know, in the spring, right? You might want to check it out. Yeah. And is it any different for the high end retailers? Because you could go into a Neiman Marcus and pay, you know, two, three, four hundred dollars for a shirt. And if you flip over the label, you know, you, it wouldn't be uncommon to see made in Vietnam. Are the labor conditions and the environmental impact any different for the high end retailers than those that are low cost? Not necessarily. You raise a really good point there. So we can't really trust that the price of a garment is a marker of how well that item was made. In fact, you know, I think it's important for us to separate those two things because we know that there are lots of, there are lots of high-end brands that 
make their products in very, very low-wage countries. And, and their pricing strategy is just a way to, to suggest to the customer that they're getting this kind of more luxurious product. And it might, it might be a marker of status even. But I don't really think that that's you know, the best way to determine. I think you really need to look at what the company is doing and whether it can, t- it can tell you, you know, where that, that item was made and the conditions under which they were made. On the other hand, what I would say, though, is that if, if you are getting a t-shirt for a dollar or three dollars or five dollars, then that's a pretty good signal that that product was, was probably not made ethically. Because companies that actually do make their products ethically and are, and are trying to give customers good value for money, their prices are actually just you know, a little bit more than that, right? Like you can get a good t-shirt for... $20 from a brand like Everlane, which is very open about its, you know, its factories and where it makes its products. And $20, you know, isn't a ridiculous amount to pay, but you know, you're certainly, you certainly can't get, you know, the kind of ethical manufacturing that you're looking for, for significantly lower than that. One of the things I was really shocked by in your article is a stat that you published where you mentioned Fashion is a $2.4 trillion industry that hires 70 million people worldwide and is the second biggest polluter after the oil industry. And that last part there really shocked me because I, I guess I, I would have thought in my own mind, I would have named you know, a number of other industries that I would have you know, naturally thought that were biggest polluters after oil. I had no idea that collectively fashion was the second biggest polluter after oil. That's that's significant. I don't think a lot of people are aware of that. Yeah, I wasn't aware of that either, actually, until I started doing research. And actually, we don't know exactly how vast the impact of, you know, how polluting fashion is, actually, because it's such a huge global industry that it's really, really hard for us to pinpoint exactly. But we know that it's an incredibly polluting industry. To think to understand the scale, you just kind of have to to think about the way that we we use clothes today. So you know, going again back to the past, you know, fifty years ago, when our grandparents were either sewing clothes or you know saving their money to to buy these clothes that were significantly more expensive, you know, even adjusted for inflation by today's standards, you know, they had fewer clothes in their closet. They weren't necessarily buying entirely new wardrobes every season. Over the last 20 years, you know, with the rise of this global manufacturing and with, you know, fast fashion brands like H&M and Zara, the expectation now is that, you know, we're going to fill our closets with new things every season and we're going to, you know, we're going to not really spend that much money on it because those clothes are pretty inexpensive. And so then you multiply that pattern of shopping by every single person in America. And then you, you think about how that's actually spreading to other parts of the world. So you think, you know, China is a rising force, you know, in the global economy. Uh, Chinese consumers are now, you know, adjusted to this particular expectation where they're buying into fast fashion. And suddenly, you know, somebody needs to be making all of these clothes that are filling up, you know, our wardrobes. And so, so that's, you know, so, so that brings into the picture this issue of labor. So actually, you know, 70 million people are making these clothes. People all over 
places like India and China and Vietnam and Cambodia, you know, in these countries, some of the, the dominant industries in these countries is clothing manufacturing. That's one piece of the puzzle. But then you think about the waste, right? Because if, if we're buying fast fashion and suddenly clothes are disposable, you know, and we don't actually at this point have a good mechanism for recycling clothes the way we recycle plastic or we recycle paper, then what's happening is that every year, tons and tons per person you know, of clothes are ending up in landfills. And so that's, that's a huge amount of waste especially when you consider how much actually went into making each one of those garments. So, you know, there's, you know, there's cotton that needs to be planted. There are various plastics that need to be turned into polyester in order to make those garments. There's so many dyes and pollutants in those dyes that have to be incorporated into the process to get clothes of different colors. All of that adds up to a huge human cost as well as a huge environmental cost. Yeah, and you you mentioned something earlier around kind of, you know, our parents, grandparents' generation where the the fast fashion thing just wasn't available. And so, and when I think about my grandparents, for example, you know, they bought more classic pieces, more things that were not less trendy and, and, you know, just classic styles that you could kind of wear regularly and would be okay. And you kind of mentioned this in your, one of your articles as kind of a technique and buying more classic things that look good when you wear them. And this is an approach I use in my own fashion because I get exhausted trying to look through clothes. I love the idea. And I love that you mentioned this in your article around finding sustainable clothes that, you know, stand the test of time. Yeah, that's definitely true that, you know, when you're buying clothes less frequently and you know that you're going to hold on to them for longer, you choose pieces that are more classic. You know, there's nothing... A pair of denim jeans, for instance, will last quite a long time. You know, like plain black t-shirts um, or white t-shirts. Th- those pieces will last a really long time. I think that, yeah, I mean, that's definitely... So I think that there's a there's this trend now where I, I think increasingly consumers are aware that fast fashion was not a healthy trend, and not something, you know, healthy for us to be buying into. And so I think some consumers are actually pretty fatigued with that idea. Um, they're tired of, you know, contributing to the waste, but they're also, you know, exactly like you, you know, they're just tired of having to go shopping every season. You know, it's, it's just not fun for them. So that, that's part of it. But I, I, you know, I think of my husband, for instance, who's definitely not trend focused. He wants to get classic pieces. You know, I think part of the problem there is that so many brands are just making things in such a you know low quality way so that they can charge so little for those clothes that even if he wants to wear something for a really long time you know it's not really that long uh, before they develop holes or the color fades and so that's you know so even if you want to to change the way you shop it's actually not that easy to do that because the industry as a whole isn't really catering to set up for it yeah totally but what I will say is that, you know, as I study the world of startups, there are actually more, more and more startups that are trying to do exactly this, which is to create longer lasting pieces um, that are classic. So one brand that does this is a brand called American Giant, which actually manufactures all of its clothes here in America. And their 
their whole goal is to create pieces that will endure and that, you know, that that are meant to stand the test of time. Everlane also stands behind its clothes and them lasting a long time. They're actually encouraging consumers to buy less, which is actually kind of a weird thing for our brand to be suggesting. There's another women's brand called Kuyana, and their whole motto is fewer better things. And so there are startups that are literally trying to go against the fast fashion trend and come up with clothes that will, you know, are suited to today's customer that is not interested in fast fashion. So many people agree with the values of equality, protecting the environment, etc. But however, there's a difference between agreeing that those are the right things to do and actually doing them. And what does it take for someone to change their behavior from a passive to active supporter kind of of these values as it relates to fashion? I think that um, the first thing to do is to just be intellectually curious about it. And that's not, you know, that's not a small thing. I think that a lot of people are just busy, you know, and, and you just think about, you know, the average family in the middle of the country with, you know, a lot of kids to, to drive to, to soccer and, and, and whatnot, right? You know, when you're thinking about buying clothes for your family, it, it seems like a stressful thing to have to think about where, you know, those items are made, even, even though you might feel bad, you know, buying clothes from a brand that you know isn't treating workers well. It's just kind of a stressful thing. So I think part of it is just kind of like getting over that hump and thinking, okay, you know, let me educate myself. Let me learn about what this industry is like and then take it from there. So I, th- I think, first of all, it's kind of getting over that. Okay, so that's that's the first thing. But then I, I think that really, in order to do it, um, to do you know what we're talking about, shopping with your values in a way that is affordable to most people, is to do exactly this thing that I'm talking about, which is, you know, maybe the first shift should be to to, to think about maybe getting fewer items, but having those items be things that you really love and that will last a long time. Because I, I do think that when you've become accustomed to buying clothes, dirt up cheap, that some, it, you know, it suddenly seems pretty expensive to be spending, you know, $60 instead of $20 for a pair of jeans or, you know, like $80 for a sweatshirt instead of like $10 for a sweatshirt. That might seem, seem a bit daunting. But if you think about it as kind of a lifestyle change where, you know, you think, okay, you know, what I'm going to do is I'm going to have a, a minimalistic closet. I'm going to have you know, a couple of outfits that I wear all the time. And then, you know, and not just and not go over the top with like seasonal items, then it just makes it a lot easier. And I think that one additional benefit to all of that, which I which I write about as well, uh, and it's not really related to sustainability or, you know, the human impact. It's just that it simplifies your life when you don't have to think too much about anything, right? If you have an, a closet full of pieces that match with one another and that are all generally the same aesthetic, you know, it makes your life a lot easier. I mean, there's a reason that, you know, very powerful people like Barack Obama and like, you know, Anna Winter, you know, a lot of, you know, famous people actually wear a kind of a uniform every day. So if you think about kind of paring down your wardrobe so that you have your uniform and it consists of pieces that are all, you know, happily, you know, ethically made, you know, it just makes this whole process seem a, less, a lot less daunting and a lot less expensive. You write about in your article, wallet activism. And can you tell us a little bit about what is wallet activism and the impact we're seeing from it? 
Yeah. So I think that as consumers, we have this impression that what we do doesn't really matter, right? Because I mean, going back over the statistics that we talked about before, you know, this is an enormous industry that employs so many people and that has such a huge impact on the environment. So what could we possibly do to change that? And actually, you know, as a reporter, I I see how individuals changing their shopping behavior actually can have a huge impact. So the example that I use is Ivanka Trump's brand. So, you know, recently Ivanka Trump uh, had to close down her fashion label. And, you know, there are many reasons for it. You know, Ivanka Trump herself said that the reason she did it was so that she could focus on her, on her work in government. But, you know, looking at sales figures, the company actually wasn't doing very well. And there were many reasons why people may have stopped shopping at her brand. Perhaps, you know, we, we heard a lot of, about how poorly workers were treated in her factory. That's, that's one thing. The quality of the clothes wasn't particularly good. Women complained about that. You know, the design of the clothes, a lot of women didn't like. So there are many reasons why they, they may have stopped shopping at her brand um, and, and resulted in a sales decline. But the point is that, you know, it did. It killed her brand, right? Like her brand doesn't exist anymore. You know, I think that if we if we choose to do something because of our values, there is hope at least that other people are thinking the same thing. And then we can kind of create a tipping point together, you know, as a community, as a, as a society where we say, actually, you know, we don't want to do this. Actually, you know, we are seeing this happening. I mean, fast fashion brands like H&M and Zara, they're not doing so well. And a lot of these brands are actually trying to change their approach to fashion to be more sustainable and to talk about their supply chain. I think that all of that has to do with consumers saying, you know, if you're going to if you're going to make your products in a way that I don't agree with, I'm actually going to go buy from this other company. So actually, you know, we don't think that we're doing anything to change the world, but actually we are, you know. Yeah. And some opponents may say that, you know, if everything were made fair and equitably, then no one would be able to afford probably most everything that they own. I find sometimes there's ambivalent attitudes around, you know, these types of topics. People acknowledge it, but they don't really want to do anything with it. You know, what do you, what do you say to that? Like they don't want to act on, on their values? Yeah, because sometimes people, well, or they may, they may acknowledge the value. They may acknowledge that it's the, not the right thing to do. And I take Ivanka, I mean, for example, I mean, you know, she has publicly advocated for women's issues. The irony in her situation is that she also had a business that probably didn't treat a lot of people very fairly. And sometimes I find that type of behavior is very common. People, they just get ambivalent about it. It's like, well, it just is what it is. And this is the way the, the world works. And not everything can be fair. And I'm always wondering, how do we challenge these, this ambivalence? Yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I think that it's really hard to be idealistic because the world is very complicated and we're hearing lots of messages that are confusing. But what I would say is that, you know, we're lucky because we have so many options now when it comes to buying things. You know, the internet is now full of new startups and new brands that are selling products online. It's easy to find something and it's easy to have it delivered to, to our homes. So we don't live, you know, like, you know, our people did 40, 50 years ago where, you know, you didn't really have any choice but to buy 
from you know, your local store, uh, your local department store or, or whatever. We have choices now and it's relatively easy for us to, to do this kind of wallet activism that we're talking about. So what I would say is that you know, it's not really much cost to you as a consumer to, to be shopping from a brand that reflects your values. You know, it's so easy to do that now. If you're, if you're feeling ambivalent about a brand, you know, why not look around for a brand that gets you really excited because you think, wow, like this is a brand that's actually trying to change the world for the better. That's great. So you mentioned there's some evidence that the market for ethically conscious products is growing and young people in particular are keen to buy from brands that are doing good in the world. How did our youth develop this consciousness? I think that about, you know, 10 years ago, you know, to 20 years ago, there was a change in, in, um, the way that brands started talking to us. I mean, you think about a, a brand like Tom's, the shoe company. Tom's was making super trendy shoes, but the, you know, they promised to donate a pair of shoes to you know, kids in the developing world who didn't have any. Or a brand like Warby Parker that makes eyewear um, and donate eyewear to, to people who need it in other parts of the world. A lot of brands started you know, incorporating ethical components into you know, the things that they were doing. Consumers start, you know, young consumers started thinking, you know, wow, that's really cool. You know, with, with this dollar that I'm spending on this product that I like, I can actually make the world a, a better place. You know, that sort of became the norm. It's that combined with this move towards an appreciation for, for craftsmanship and locally made products. So the other trend that we saw during the same period was that, you know, there was a rise in, you know, for instance, things like farmers markets where, you know, we would see where our food was made. There was also like a rise in things like craft beer. You know, we wanted to know where our beer was made. There was this notion that, you know, there actually humans are involved with making the things that we use and we consume every day. That combined with, you know, the fact that all these brands were like emphasizing their you know, their social responsibility created a culture where consumers kind of expected that. So today's consumer, you know, feels like, you know, if a brand isn't doing this, that, you know, they're not, you know, they're not a very, you know, they're not a brand that's really with it. They're on the lookout for brands that do that. And I'm seeing this across a number of other dimensions as well outside of fashion too. And it's actually really great to see that our youth are developing this kind of ethical consciousness as they think about how to operate their lives. What are you most excited for in values-based fashion right now and for the future? Well, I think that the biggest challenge in fashion today is that, or at least one of the biggest ones, is that we haven't figured out how to recycle material, you know, how to recycle fabric. Really a shame because a lot of clothes that we own, um, you know, and, and we we finish, you know, using a lot of them end up in, in landfills. We think that we are donating them to places like Goodwill, you know, and, and a certain and certainly like a certain proportion of clothes that we donate, you know, end up on, you know, the backs of like other people. But you know, a lot in a lot of cases, these clothes also end up in landfills. It's something that we a lot of people are not aware of that actually even clothes that you donate don't end up, you know, being used again. So what we really need to do is figure out how to recycle clothing. The problem is that because today's clothes are so complicated, it's really hard to do that. So today's, you know, the average garment that you're wearing actually contains fibers 
from lot like lot of, made of lots of different types of material. So you might have a shirt that is cotton but has polyester in it. And you might have a cashmere sweater that is like, you know, 80% cashmere, but, you know, 20%, you know, polyester or something like that, right? And so if you wanted to break down the cotton at a particular temperature, it might actually melt the, you know, the plastic-based fibers in that garment. And so it's just really hard to do that. But there are companies now, including the H&M Foundation, that are developing techniques where you basically, you pulp the, the fabric and then you, you separate the different types of fibers so that then you can re-spin them and, re, and recycle them. It, you think about it a similar way that you might think of like mixed, um, you know, recyclable materials, right? Where like all of the plastics and paper end up in the same bin, but then at the factory, uh, they're, they're separated. It's something like that. Once we're able to do that, you know, that we, we will suddenly have this closed loop where we have these raw materials, we turn them into clothes, we wear the clothes, and then those materials are then turned back into to clothing. And it's just this, this closed loop cycle. And then we, we won't be relying as much on, on using virgin raw materials. And so that's something I'm really excited about because, you know, that could really have a huge impact on the environment. Oh, for sure. I mean, just the amount of cotton is grown every year to make clothes. I, I imagine, you know, for this trillion dollar industry, the savings, I, I'm just amazed to your point that it recycling cotton and other um, materials hasn't already happened. I know. I, I think it just wasn't a priority because, you know, now that I'm, I'm seeing companies developing the technology to do this, I mean, it's something that is possible. You know, it's just that nobody was really focused on it. Cause I, I and I think it's, to your earlier point, right? No, nobody was really thinking about the massive impact our clothes have on the environment. Have you had a chance to actually sample or see any recycled cotton garments or anything like that? I'm just curious what they what do they feel like, look like, or how durable are they, or is that still being developed? I think that that is still being developed, but there are there are some interesting things that I've seen, interesting materials that I've seen. One is Nike, for instance, is doing this really cool thing where they're basically taking scraps of leather that end up on the cutting room floor and turning that into, you know, into sheets of leather, which are then going into making, you know, other pairs of shoes. And so that's, that's an interesting way. It's not exactly recycling, but it's, it's on the way to recycling, I think. And yeah, there, there are cashmere um, sweaters that are made from, from recycled cashmere material that I've tried. And to be perfectly honest, they feel exactly like, you know, a, a brand new cashmere sweater. So, so really, it's, this is all possible. It's within our reach. It just really takes us focusing on trying to solve this problem. For the person who's listening to our show today, who all of this has resonated with him or her, and you've in, provided so much inspiring content. And I certainly invite all of our listeners to go out and check some of your articles because you've got some great resources, tools, and tricks there that I think are really helpful. What's the one thing you would you know, recommend to the person listening right now who says, you know what, I'm ready to make a change for the better. I want to be more ethically conscious uh, in my purchasing decisions as it relates to, to buying clothes. What one thing do you offer them to get started? I would say just go to your closet and have a look at what proportion of your clothes you actually wear. Just look at your closet and, and just think, hey, you know, actually, you know, how, how often do I wear this dress or, you know, this shirt? And then think, you know, 
maybe my life would be simpler and um, and more straightforward if I had if I just had you know a few pieces that I really love. I think that that that's just kind of the, the best way to to just kind of change your thinking about this, so that you know the next time you you buy an item, you think actually you know. I'm just going to buy what I need. I'm going to buy clothes that I'm going to wear a lot. And if I'm going to do that, I might as well invest in a piece that is long lasting and that is made in a way that corresponds with my values. I think that the first step in that process is just kind of, you know, just facing reality and being like, you know, maybe I don't need all this stuff in my life right now. I think that's, that's a great place to start. I think that's great advice. And I, as you, you share that, I, I feel this overwhelming sense of guilt as I think about my own closet. <laughs> Um, Jacob, go to your closet you know, right now and see how many clothes. <laughs> so I, I actually, I actually think this is wonderful advice, Elizabeth, because it's so true. Like I can't tell you how many times I've gone to my closet and opened it up and have felt this sense of guilt around one: why did I spend all this money on this? I don't wear ninety percent of it, and as of the last year back to some of the strategies that you outlined in your article, I started to adopt that just because it was simpler for me. I was just, I got tired of thinking about what to wear and having to shop for things. And I said, you know what? A blue Oxford shirt and a white Oxford shirt is kind of my uniform. It's what I wear most every other day. And I've got a hand, a handful of them. But um, I'm in that dilemma now because I was thinking about this before we did this podcast, looking at my closet thinking, gosh, I... I've made a change in the last year to get that uniform kind of set up, but I'm I'm glad to be shifting away from this need to have a full closet of things because we feel that we need all of these things all the time when really we don't really wear most of it. Yeah, and I think that the the thing that a lot of people don't realize about how wonderful this is is that it's so nice to go to your closet and truly love everything that you have in it because you get so much utility out of it because it's exactly cut or you know it's, it's well tailored to your body and because you know that nobody was harmed in that process. I think when you just have those few pieces that where every part of you know every part of your closet is something that makes you happy, you know that's just like a, a little kind of intangible thing that that just makes your life a little bit better. Yeah, for sure. Elizabeth, this has been wonderful. I've really enjoyed this conversation. I think our listeners have too. How can our listeners continue to follow you and the good work that you're doing? Oh, well, thank you so much for having me. Yeah, so they can they can follow me on Twitter at Liz Segrin. And I'm also uh, writing stories almost every day for Fast Company. So just go to fastcompany.com. Great. We will, for the folks that are listening, we'll post all of those links in the show notes. Be sure to tune in next week for another great episode. Thank you, Elizabeth. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Discover Your Values podcast. Are you ready to explore your values? and create your best life? Visit discoveryourvalues.com and download our workbook to begin your journey.